Amen. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning. Res kids, you guys are dismissed to go to class. Ushers, after they clear the aisles, you all can receive the morning's tithes and offerings. Um, I'll remind you of this at the end of the service, but before I'll forget, which is uh, more than likely, we have some sign-ups this morning for uh, the spring semester of discipleship groups. So if you're not plugged into a discipleship group, we would love to get you plugged into one uh, today. So sign up in the, in the foyer on your way out. We have sign-ups for some service opportunities with, with Res Kids and with our First Impressions team, from greeting to making coffee to uh, being a greeter in the parking lot to everything else that uh, fits the needs of where we are right now as a fellowship. We also have sign-ups for uh, a new attendee dessert. We'll dessert with the pastors, so you can come have dessert at, at our place and get to know us a little bit. Uh, meet our dogs, Dre and Jenny. Uh, we will leave them locked up just in case you know, there's issues, but when the party really gets started, we'll bring them down uh, and have some fun together. Uh, the final thing is we are uh, doing a class that will begin here in early March uh, through Justo Gonzalez's text, The Story of Christianity, uh, Volume 1, The Early Church to the Dawn of the Reformation. So I'm going to be teaching this. Uh, you will have to buy the book just to prove that you like want to come. Uh, if that is a problem, feel free to come to me in private, and we will have no problem getting the book for you whatsoever. So don't hesitate to do so. Um, but we would love some, some buy-in. So uh, ask me anything you like. We got some sign-ups this morning to sort of gauge interest. Uh, that way we can know how to plan for that. But uh, this is an incredible text that really helps us understand the, the arc of Christianity from, from the Scriptures to the Reformation, a, a major gap in most of our understandings of the Christian Faith. So I encourage you to sign up for this class. Uh, I'll teach through this text, and I think it'll be a really helpful time together. We're beginning our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and I couldn't be more excited. Reading through the sermon as a, a whole, there's a statement that Jesus makes in regards to the Pharisees and the religious hypocrites. It's a brief statement. It's almost an afterthought when you read the whole thing from beginning to end. But in some ways, I think this small statement is the point of the entire sermon. That statement is this, don't be like them. <laughs> Do not be like them. Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's telling them essentially to stop looking around and figuring out how to live and start looking at me. Jesus says, I will teach you how to live. I know you think this is what life is all about, but let me show you a better way. I know you think this is what will bring you happiness, but let me show you a better way. I know you think this is what success really is, but let me show you a better way. I know you think this is how you should treat your neighbors who disagree with you, but let me show you a better way. I know you think this is what religion is all about, but let me show you a better way. From the beginning to the end, the Sermon on the Mount screams, don't be like them. Don't be like the world and don't be like the religious hypocrites. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation into the life of God. In it, Jesus teaches us how to be, how to live, and how to worship. 
contained in these pages are an invitation to leave ho-hum religion as usual and enter into God's way of being. Enter into God's kingdom, a kingdom that is upside down, a kingdom where the last are first, the first are last, the meek are powerful, the poor are rich, and the hungry are filled. This morning, we stop looking around trying to be like them, and we begin our many-week journey of looking to Jesus, learning to be like him. This morning, we see our first snapshots and vignettes of life in God's kingdom, and we hear the invitation from our Messiah. Lay aside casual, cultural Christianity. Pick up your cross and follow King Jesus. So let's join Jesus on that mountain. Let's see him for who he is, and let us hear that message that has refused to stay on the page for over 2,000 years. The title of this sermon is The Mountain, the Messiah, and the Message. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, we'll get there in just a moment. The mountain is an image dense with theological meaning. In antiquity, mountains were places where the gods of the peoples would meet with their gods and offer some special revelation. In many religions, that is still true today. The mountain is significant even in the history of Israel, Mount Ararat, Mount Carmel, Mount Gilead, Mount Moriah, Mount Pisgah, and of course, Mount Zion. Each of these mountains serve as a backdrop for significant events in the life of Israel. Perhaps from last year's study of Exodus, you remember Mount Zion. You remember the glory of God descending on it when God gave Moses the law. In our text today, Jesus climbs a mountain with his disciples, and sitting down, he assumes the posture of a rabbi. Intimately to his disciples, with perhaps a larger crowd looking on, Jesus begins to unfold the content of the kingdom of God. Now, the Sermon on the Mount exists within the context of Matthew's gospel, and I almost just gave the whole sermon this morning, an overview of Matthew's gospel to this point, but I sort of decided not to at the last moment. But we can see, if we were to do that, that even in the early portion of the gospel, there is much symmetry between the life of Moses in the life of Jesus. There are dreams connected to their births. There's the slaughter of children from which they were miraculously delivered. There's a flight from the land only to return at God's direction. There's a period of temptation in the wilderness. There's 40 days and nights of fasting, and there's the passing through the Jordan River. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus climbs that mountain, a little like Moses. Like Moses, Jesus is revealing the heart of God, bringing the word of God to the people of God. He is making known God's will for God's people in God's kingdom. But Jesus is doing this more fully than Moses ever could. As the truer and better Moses, the promised Messiah from the seed of Abraham, the son of God and man. This sermon that Jesus brings is the eschatological fulfillment of the law. This sermon presents a view of human flourishing that embraces suffering in anticipation of the kingdom which Christ is inaugurating. 
Standing on that mountain is God himself. Seated at that mountain is God himself. And as he opens his mouth, all cannot shake the feeling that heaven is near. The content we'll be covering over the next several weeks is not the musings of a guru, the theory of a teacher or a life coach's 10 easy steps to a better life. This content comes straight from the heart of God. We will come face to face with a vision of human flourishing that embraces suffering, embraces disappointment, embraces difficulty as we await the kingdom Jesus is bringing. As we read God's word this morning and in the weeks to follow, we will not be able to shake the feeling that heaven is near. So let's come, saints of resurrection, let us come to the mountain and hear the words of the Messiah. Verse 3. He's opened his mouth and he's taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here from the very beginning, Jesus presents not a list of heroes to emulate, nor a list of moral behaviors that describe true religion. Rather, Jesus utterly redefines who the people of God are and what their lives are like. Jesus is giving us a snapshot of citizenship in God's kingdom, and this snapshot will set the tone for all that follows. Commonly known as the Beatitudes, these verses, represent, uh, these verses present a life that only can rise from the soil of transforming grace. These do not describe an elite group of Christians. These are aspirational statements for all of us. These statements are to be true of all who live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. You'll notice in the text that each beatitude contains this sort of blessed and blessing relationship. That Greek word for blessed being makarios. There's a makarios and then there's a blessing. Blessed is fill in the blank for fill in the blank. There's a statement of blessedness and an explanation of the blessing. Each of these makarios, each of these statements, each of these blessings are an invitation into a different way of being in the world. It's an invitation to leave the kingdom of man and live in the kingdom of God. It's a way of being in the world that paradoxically achieves ultimate flourishing, understanding that when we embrace these statements, we embrace the world as God intends it. To be. So let's walk through these statements of blessedness and explanations of the blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually poor man in the Old Testament is the one who is afflicted. He's the one who is unable to save himself. He's the one who readily acknowledges his neediness. The spiritually poor man is not confident in his piety. He's not confident in his performance. He's not confident in his own knowledge. Blessed is the one who is at the end of their rope. To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge our need for God. We readily and freely admit our need for him, right? I think of that old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, if you know the words, or I 
die. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the spiritually unimpressive. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the spiritually unimpressive. I just wonder how the religious scholars feel at the bottom of the mountain. (laughs) Jesus is taking a bunch of nobodies up to the top of the mountain, and he's sitting down with them, and to them, he's unfolding the content of God's kingdom. And the religious scholars got to be down at the bottom like, man, who are these guys? Why are they up there? They They didn't even get into the right school, right? They don't even know the right stuff. Who are these nobodies? And why is this new popular teacher, why is he taking them? I'm much more educated. I make much more sense than they would. But they simply do not understand that all you need is nothing. And they think they're too good to have nothing. You, needy in heart, needy in mind, come to the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Let's jump right into the paradox here. Happy is the one who is not happy. Right? I think there are such a thing as godly tears, and I think it is true that we do not often cry them enough. Blessed is the one who grieves the realities of life in a fallen world. It is one thing to acknowledge your spiritual poverty. It is quite another to grieve and mourn over your spiritual poverty. Blessed is the one who knows they are poor in spirit and who grieves their sin and the realities of life in a world of sin. I hate my sin. I hate my sicknesses and oppression and all the things that happen because of sin in the world. I hate that I hurt others, that others hurt me. More than anything, I hate that sin is an offense to a holy God. Jesus teaches that those who mourn these realities are truly flourishing, even though it doesn't look like it, because God is their comforter. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who mourns. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they will be the ones who are comforted, and their comfort will come from Almighty God. Next, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy, blessed, content is the one who knows they will inherit the earth without one ounce of political posturing and agenda pushing. Blessed is the humble, blessed is the gentle, and blessed is the considerate. Hear this, church. If you're taking notes, it might be worth jotting this down. Meek people don't rise in the kingdom of man, but meek people reign in the kingdom of God. Meek people don't rise in the kingdom of man. You don't get to be powerful here on earth because you're meek. But meek people will reign in the kingdom of God. Now don't mistake me, meekness is not complacency. If we want the full definition of meekness, we look no further than Jesus himself, and we'll get there on all of these in a moment. The meek man or woman fights for what is right, but he or she also pursues obscurity and trusts that the sovereign hand of God will act, that he is guiding all of history to his desired end, and that we, the meek, the humble, the patient, are the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed is the one who is gentle. Blessed is the one who is humble. And blessed is the one who is sensitive to the needs of his neighbor because they are resting in the powerful hand of God.
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pit those who hunger and thirst for righteousness over and against those who hunger and thirst for some sort of carnal satisfaction, right? Whether it's... um, you know, food, lust, whatever it may be, this, this, this itch that we are constantly scratching. Blessed is the one who's hungry for righteousness because he will be satisfied. The one who hungers and thirsts for the things of the flesh, they will be perpetually hungry. The itch will never be scratched. It will never be enough. And in eternity, that perpetual hunger will not Leave them. Because sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It promises satisfaction. It gives you a little bit, but just enough to keep you coming back for more. And that cat and mouse game will continue for all of eternity. But the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Well, she will receive it tenfold in the kingdom of God. Why is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness blessed? Because one day they are the ones who will be filled. Blessed is the one who wants to be righteous even when they're not. <laughs> blessed is the one who wants to know God, wants to love God, and wants to follow God even though they are weak and needy. You're blessed when you've worked up an appetite for God because he alone can satisfy that desire. This morning, church, I I pray that we would develop in the pit of our hearts and stomach and mind a sincere hunger for righteousness. It's one thing to mourn over past sin, but it's another to yearn and long and hunger for future righteousness. Now these first several beatitudes, statements of blessing and contentedness and happiness and flourishing, they've dealt with our relationship with God. Blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Some scholars note that we now move to a more interpersonal dynamic here. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the ones who care, because they're the ones who are being cared for. Blessed are the ones who extend forgiveness, because they are the ones who have experienced forgiveness. Mercy received is mercy extended in the economy of God. Mercy received is mercy extended in the economy of God. Blessed are the ones who care. Blessed are the ones who show mercy, for they receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, blessed are the sincere, 
Blessed are the ones who have nothing to hide. Blessed are the transparent, the one who lives lives of integrity. Why are they blessed? Because they can see God. Now by faith, their vision of God is full because sin is not clouding the picture. And one day in eternity, they will see God face to face. You see God by faith in your life when your vision isn't clouded by sin. We oftentimes experience a desire to see God without a desire for a pure heart. And those two truths cannot coexist. Let's leave the double lives in 2019. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the ones who are pursuing integrity. Blessed are the ones who are not one person Sunday at 11 a.m. and quite another Monday morning or Saturday night or fill in the blank date here. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Never lose the promised reward of your fight for integrity. Never lose your promised reward in your fight for integrity. It is difficult to pursue purity of heart. It is difficult to be authentic and sincere. It makes you vulnerable. But it's worth it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. We are called to peace. We long for peace because as God's children, we are heirs of peace. We are heirs of the wholeness found only in God's kingdom. Some assorted quotes from the scripture lumped together here. We are called to actively pursue peace, strive for peace with all men. And so far as it depends on us, we are to, quote, live peaceably with all. Oh, this is countercultural. We strive for peace within the church, and we strive for peace in the world around us. Somewhere along the lines, we have equated peacemaking with moral compromise. Amen. Loving your neighbor who is far from God is not compromising your convictions about God. Loving your neighbor who is far from God is not compromising your convictions about God. In fact, that is a living out of your convictions about God. You love your neighbor who's unlike you because you love a God who loves that neighbor. Because you love a God who created that neighbor, who desires the good of that neighbor. We've bought the lies of the people in the culture who tell us that we need to be divided from each other. My best friend in college is a Muslim guy, right? We can have sincere friends who are not like us, who don't look like us, they don't think like us, they don't believe like us. And we buy into this hogwash, oh, I'll be your friend, but uh, I can't hang out with you. I can't talk to you. I can't be seen with you because I'm more afraid of being called liberal than loveless. So because I'm afraid of what these other guys think of me, I can't actually be seen with you, so our friendship's going to have to be private. What kind of friendship is that? We are the church of Jesus Christ. We have been given the gospel, which is the ultimate message of reconciliation, that a holy God has made a way for an unholy people to know him and love him forever. That is the message we proclaim. 
that through Jesus Christ, God has made a way for all of creation to be reconciled to God. So because that message forms us, that message is at the core of our being, reconciliation is the oxygen that we breathe. We are peacemaking people. You can't be a real peacemaker until you rest in who you are as a member of God's family. I'm free to make peace when I realize there's no threat to my existence. I'm free to make peace when I realize I belong to the one who establishes peace. I'm free from fear and insecurity when I realize that I am an heir of God's unshakable kingdom. We live in polarized and polarizing times. If I had a dollar for every post from a Christian I see that's, that's trying to, to, to stir up fear of the other, whatever that other is, the one who doesn't look like us, the one who doesn't think like us, the one who's from another place. Listen, we'll let the people who deal with policies deal with policies. My home is open to anyone at any time because we are bringing a message of peace for all people, that the God of peace knows them and loves them, and our doors are open to anyone. Blessed are those who make peace, for they are called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you, not your persecutor. Blessed are those who are treated wrongly because of their faith. Now, I have to be a little honest, a little blunt, and then I'll walk it back in grace. I'll say it in grace, too. Our category for persecution in this country is, is, is a little different in the scope of global Christianity. In this country, we act like losing tax exemption is persecution, whereas in many places in the world, losing your head is persecution. Losing privilege is one thing. Losing your life is quite another. So when someone comes into your home and chops off your hand because you've touched a Bible with it, for instance, a story with which I'm familiar Know that you're blessed. Know that you are happy. Because the one who's exercising his power and flexing his muscles right now, theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to be clear, though. Persecution, essentially, at its core, is really a clash of irreconcilable belief systems. So that means just because we don't have some physical persecution in the U.S. doesn't mean that there is no persecution. Your faith in Jesus and your commitment to him will put you in situations where others treat you differently because of the way you act. This absolutely happens here, and it has great consequence that negatively affects us. The consequences of that persecution are painful, they're economically painful, they're socially painful, and in some cases, maybe they are physically painful. Which leads me to the next beatitude. So blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely 
on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do you respond when others treat you poorly? You respond with joy because your reward is great in heaven, and you respond in joy because you're in great company. <laughs> They're treating you just like they treated the prophets before you. And Jesus may say, they're treating you exactly as they're about to treat me. Because the kind of life that Jesus has been describing at the beginning of this sermon is the kind of life Jesus lived. Jesus was humble and poor in spirit, though without sin. Jesus mourns and grieves, Matthew 23, 37. Jesus hungers and thirsts with longing for God's kingdom to be made present, chapter 9, verse 38. Jesus is pure in heart, chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus shows mercy all over the text, and Jesus brings peace. Even as the primary sense of the Beatitudes sort of speaks to the persecuted and the ones who are going through a difficult time, one could say the flavor of the Beatitudes matches the flavor of Matthew's gospel, tilting and careening towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is humble and poor in spirit. Jesus mourns and grieves. Jesus hungers and thirsts for a longing for God's kingdom to be, to, be, to be made known. Jesus is pure in heart. Jesus shows mercy, and Jesus brings peace. Now put yourself on that mountain as we work our way to a close. Jesus is setting before his disciples a different vision than they received down below. And Jesus issues an invitation. Follow me. Live life this way, embrace persecution, embrace being poor in spirit, embrace mourning, be meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, be merciful, be pure in heart, be peacemakers, and embrace all that happens to you in that path. This rabbi is completely changing the game. By the end of the sermon, as we'll see in many weeks, the crowd at the bottom can barely believe their ears. He was unlike the other teachers because he taught with sincerity. He taught with authenticity. And he taught with something no one else really had, real authority. The blessed life here in the Beatitudes and the life that is expounded in the Sermon on the Mount is countercultural. It's so different than the one the world offers. It's so different than other religions offer. And it's so different than casual Christianity offers. So as we sit at the feet of our rabbi Jesus, we adjust our expectations. We embrace the realities that blessedness is found amid suffering and waiting. We trust that he knows best about life here on the ground. 
These beatitudes from the very beginning of the sermon adjust our culturally informed expectations of what the blessed, happy, and meaningful life really is. The Sermon on the Mount will show us a picture of life in God's kingdom, and I pray that we will live into it. I'm going to pray for us, and then after I pray for us, uh, I'm going to invite us all to the Lord's table. So having heard this message, would you join me in prayer? Father, um, we are uh, filled with the sense that heaven is near, that these truths from your word are from another world. Lord, your kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. It's a place where the first are last, the meek are powerful, the poor are rich, and the hungry are filled. Looking at these snapshots of the blessed life, Lord, we ask that you will change our expectations for who we are and how we live. Help us embrace our poverty of spirit. Help us mourn and enter into your comfort. Help us be meek and inherit the earth. Spark in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for there we will be satisfied. Help us be merciful in all of our lives, for we shall receive mercy. Help us be pure in heart, God. Help us pursue you. Help us to be real. Help us to be sincere. Help us shed those double lives that cling so near. Help us be peacemakers. Help us be convictionally kind and people who make peace in our families, in our church, and in the world around us. Help us when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Help us when others don't understand us, when they revile us, when they persecute us, when they utter all kinds of evil against us. Help us rejoice and be glad, knowing that our reward is great in heaven, knowing that we are following the example of the prophets who have gone before and the greatest prophet who ever lived, God himself, Jesus Christ. Help us over these coming weeks understand what life in your kingdom looks like, and live under your rule and reign in the everyday stuff of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.